0: Hello and welcome back to The Illness Chronicles. This is episode two. My name is Allison and I am your host. Before we get started, I just want to make a disclaimer. I am not a health expert, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a scientist. So any of the things that I'm talking about today, I'm talking about from my personal experience. Um, And if you are experiencing any symptoms that require regulation of any sort, please talk to your own doctor or physician about those. um, And please don't listen to a podcast for diagnostics, even though I know that it can be really, really helpful to hear somebody who might be going through something similar to what you're going through, hence the podcast. I want to say thank you to my producer, Josh. Thank you to my dad, Bob Gluck, for setting up my recording studio. I'm currently at home in Albany, while I wait out the first wave of the coronavirus. Um, And I want to thank Sophie for providing the artwork and again, my dad, Bob, for providing the beautiful music that you hear at the top. So May is the commemorative month of a lot of chronic illnesses like EDS um, and a bunch of other ones two of the chronic illnesses that May commemorates are actually illnesses that I have. Um, So May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month, and it is also Myalgic Encephalomyelitis Awareness Month, ME Awareness Month. So today I want to be talking a little bit more about my diagnoses. I want to talk about my diagnostic journey. And then I, of course, want to be speaking a little bit about the current state of the world, especially for folks with chronic illnesses. So for those of you who joined us for our first episode, I was talking with my producer, Josh, about what it feels like to be someone with a chronic illness during the very beginning of the coronavirus outbreak in the US. So today I'm going to be expanding a little bit on those ideas. So I first wanna start with some definitions. So according to the CDC, it's interesting. On the CDC website, fibromyalgia is actually listed under types of arthritis. I have personally never heard it um, referred to as a type of arthritis, but that's an interesting way of classifying it. Um, So they say fibromyalgia is a condition that causes pain all over the body, sleep problems, fatigue, and often emotional and mental distress. People with fibromyalgia may be more sensitive to pain than people without fibro. This is called abnormal pain perception processing. Fibromyalgia affects 4 million U.S. adults, about 2% of the adult population. The cause is not known, but it can be effectively treated and managed. Some signs and symptoms according to the CDC. Pain and stiffness all over the body, fatigue and tiredness, depression and anxiety, sleep problems, problems with thinking, memory and concentration, headaches, including migraines. Other symptoms may include tingling or numbness in hands and feet, pain in the face or jaw, TMJ, digestive problems such as IBS. My experience of fibromyalgia is pretty well aligned with those symptoms, um, but it's a little bit confusing because some of my symptoms have crossover with my ME diagnosis, my IBS diagnosis, my celiac diagnosis, um, and then a few conditions that I was in the process of working towards diagnosis when coronavirus hit. So I'm currently on the path to diagnosis as well as currently diagnosed. So to define um, ME, or myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME used to be known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Specialists in the field are sort of moving away from using that term to describe ME, I think it's because chronic fatigue syndrome is sort of taken lightly by a lot of people. Like it just sounds like you're like really really tired, but it's actually a really horrible and debilitating illness. So the CDC says that ME is a disabling and complex illness. People with ME are not able, often not able to do their usual activities. At times, ME may confine them to bed. People with ME have overwhelming fatigue that is not improved by rest. ME may get worse after any activity, whether it's physical or mental. This symptom is known as post-exertional malaise, or PEM. Other symptoms can include problems with sleep, thinking, concentrating, pain, and dizziness. This definition is... Definitely not all inclusive. There are a lot of aspects to Emmy that are not spoken about in this definition. But something that's really interesting is that one of the treatments for fibromyalgia is uh, exercise. And exercise is actually something that creates flare-ups for people with ME. And so because those often occur as co-illnesses, that can be really, really challenging to find balance for. And for me, that's been something I've struggled with for years is knowing that I need to exercise to remain low pain from fibro. But when I exercise, it initiates a flare-up of ME. So that's a real challenge. I'm now looking at the ME Action website. And I'm seeing that ME is listed as a multi-system disease that causes dysfunction of the neurological, immune, endocrine, and energy metabolism systems. So a lot of people with ME experience, and this is a quote here, all people with ME experience a substantial loss of physical or cognitive functioning, but there is a spectrum of severity onset can be either sudden or gradual, and the intensity or frequency of specific symptoms can wax and wane. While symptoms can fluctuate significantly from day to day, shifts in overall wellness should be measured in years, not weeks or months. It also estimates that 80 to 90% of folks suffering from ME are undiagnosed at this point. Some of the symptoms of ME include orthostatic intolerance, unrefreshing sleep, pain in muscles and joints, headaches, Cognitive symptoms like brain fog, difficulty retrieving words, poor working memory, sensitivity to light, sound, or vibration, taste, odor, or touch, gastrointestinal symptoms, muscle fatigue, weakness... Autonomic and endocrine system trouble, such as poor temperature regulation, cold or heat intolerance, and immune symptoms, such as tender lymph nodes, recurrent sore throats, fevers, or flu-like symptoms, and new food or chemical sensitivities. So you might be looking at the or listening to this and thinking like, whoa, that is just like everything that person who is sick with ME is sick with everything and i think for a lot of our ex- a lot of folks who are have been diagnosed with ME or who live with ME that is what it feels like it feels like you have everything you have every symptom and you bring this long laundry list of symptoms to a doctor and they basically look at you like you have 17 heads and they say okay but you know none of these are connected so I don't know how to help you, sorry, or have you seen a therapist, or I'm sure you're fine. You don't look sick. But if you've ever experienced some illness where you have symptoms that are occurring in multiple systems of the body, then you you know that to live like that, I mean, it's, it's really debilitating. It's a real challenge. I want to talk about my diagnostic Journey today for a lot of folks who have ME and fibro and all chronic illnesses. When we think back to our early years, we think about were we sick as a young person. And I think a lot of us, after doing some, you know, soul searching. Um, We realized that we were kind of sick kids and that was true for me. I was kind of a sick kid. Um, I got sick a lot as a young person and my illnesses didn't just go away. Like I got really sick. Like when I was in the fifth grade, I had strep throat, but it actually turned out that it was pneumonia and I was sick for like three, four weeks out of school. But my first memories of having symptoms that I would now classify as potentially related to ME or fibro occur as early as the seventh grade. So I have no idea if that illness in the fifth grade contributes to, to the onset of my symptoms because a lot of the time ME, and I'm going to talk about this more later, is triggered by a virus or an illness It's sometimes thought of as a post-viral syndrome, so we'll talk about that more later. I have this really strong memory of being in the seventh grade, and I went to a Jewish day school as a young person and as a preteen, and so it was required for all of my classmates to invite each other to our bar and bat mitzvahs and to the bar and bat mitzvah parties, and I remember being at the bar mitzvah party of someone in my class doing the hora, so for those non-Jews out there, the Hora is a dance. Um, it's a celebratory dance where everyone is moving in circles, concentric circles around each other. And there's someone in the middle who's being celebrated often. And that person is raised in a chair. And it's it's a very, very chaotic experience. It's like the most festive experience, sort of. Um, so I remember being in the middle of the Hora dancing, dancing around and around and around and all of a sudden being hit by this intense feeling of just exhaustion, like debilitating exhaustion and this feeling of my sense of self being like sort of taken out of me. And it wasn't dissociation to the degree that like I wasn't like looking at myself from above, but I just I had this very strange out of body sensation, which I now would classify as brain fog or the mental instability that I get from PEM but at that time I I was ter- it was absolutely terrifying I left the room and for the next few years I would have these bouts basically of this intense feeling of dissociation and fatigue that would happen a lot of the time when I was overstimulated or after being overstimulated overly stimulated I remember being in the bathroom at home while my grandma was doing my hair for a play that I was in a musical that I was in and just all of a sudden like being like about to pass out and being completely dehydrated after the 7th grade symptoms started coming and going which i now know were flares, flare-ups over the years. And then I'd have bouts of acute illness like mono, um, swine flu I had, strep, pneumonia. Um, I even had a cardiac episode when I was in college that led to the discovery of a heart murmur because I was having really intense heart palpitations. And these, these acute illness bouts, they would last for lengthy periods of time. It was really hard for me to get better once I got sick from something. I would go to the doctor with strange symptoms, and I always had nice doctors, like they wanted to help, but they just like didn't, they couldn't. So I would go to the doctor with strange symptoms like weakness in my arms or extreme fatigue or constant diarrhea or pain that wouldn't go away or a rapid heart rate. And no one ever tested me for chronic illness beyond the usual blood diagnostics. I was told again and again that nothing was wrong with me. I was told again and again that it was all in my head. I felt crazy because I knew that I was sick and there was no proof. There was no diagnostic proof. I think that's partially because they weren't doing the right tests, but also because I didn't have the right doctors. So in 2012, I had my biggest crash and symptom flare-up. I had just graduated from college, and I moved into a house in Northampton, Mass, where there was black mold. And I had a summer of back-to-back sinus infections. Um, Again, that pattern of getting sick, having a hard time getting better, just being sick for so long. My symptoms flared so badly, I could Barely get out of bed all of the time. I felt completely out of my body. I had fevers every day. I had chills. I had pain all over my body. Just all of the things that I had experienced over my life, it was like they all coalesced into this one moment. So a lot of people talk about having an exposure or an acute illness that leads to the symptoms that they've always had latent in them, revealing themselves. I don't really know scientifically how that works or why, but a lot of folks in the chronic illness community have this experience, and that is how it was for me. So in 2012, I moved home with my parents, and I started seeing an integrative doctor. At this point, I... Strongly believe in integrative mag- medicine. I have not had positive interactions or results from most of my Western doctors, but I do believe that Western care is necessary for dealing, especially with acute illnesses and some aspects of chronic illness. And a lot of people need Western medicine in order to survive. But for my personal condition up to this point. I've been able to regulate it mostly with non-western medicine um, but I also see a Western doctor because that's what the that's what integrative medicine is that's you know taking the good from both and making sure that they work together to provide the best care for you. When I saw this integrative doctor, he tested me for a bunch of things that I wouldn't ordinarily have been tested for. He tested me for Lyme panels, and he tested me for MTHFR, which is a gene mutation that's actually a little bit common, but it can it basically um, makes you intolerant to a lot of folic acid or to beat some B12 so your body like isn't able to take in one of the vitamins that it needs to create energy. So I started taking a methylated B vitamin and that did help. He had me on a juice cleanse and that helped. I really believe that healing the gut is really important to maintaining the immune system. And so things slowly started to get a little bit better. I started to get a little bit better sort of on a tangent a little bit. In November of 2012, I was in a car accident and that car accident was um, a life-threatening car accident um, and I sustained really major injuries from this accident that still have ripple effects for me today. At that point, I was feeling better. I was starting to, you know, I felt like I was picking my life up because at that time, I didn't know that my illness was chronic. My doctor um, was the first person who suggested that he thought I had ME and that sort of, you know, hit home for me. Um, but at that time, I really wasn't thinking about like, OK, I'm going to be sick forever. I was, think- I was thinking like, OK, like here are all these things I can do to feel better. So I'm going to try to do these things and feel better. And I was feeling better. And then I was in this car accident. Um, so that set me back a long time. And so when the summer came along, I moved in with my ex-boyfriend back to Northampton and I brought with me a ton of supplements and medical equipment and I had to like take these special probiotic shakes every day that I would make. Anyway, so over the next number of years, I would have periods where I would feel better and then periods where I would have flares and where I would react to food or seasonal changes or mold or I would get sick from an acute illness and it would trigger a flare. But again, I wasn't using the term flare. In summer 2014, I had a huge flare up. Um, I was in Europe for the summer on a six-week trip And I ended up being so sick the whole summer. It it was absolutely miserable. I could barely drag my body around. It felt like lugging a bag of logs was just awful. So I had that big flare. And then over the years, it was like a wave effect. I would be okay. And then I'd push myself and I'd have a flare and I would feel a little bit better. So I'd start exercising to get strong again. And then I'd have a flare and I'd have to stop and I'd lose all that progress. So then... In 2018, December 2018, I was working at a boarding school and I got really, really sick. And it may have started as an acute illness. Um, Like it may, I think it started with bronchitis and I just didn't get better for like weeks. And then the weeks turned into a month and then a month turned into six weeks. So my doctor finally sent me to the rheumatologist and my rheumatologist was the one who finally diagnosed me with fibro. He was able to diagnose me with fibro uh, due to two diagnostic elements. So, one, he tested a bunch of my trigger points and saw that I had 16, I think 16 out of 18 trigger points. These are tender points that a lot of folks with fibro have. And then he asked me whether I ever take ibuprofen <laughs> to help deal with the pain. And I was like, yo, Ibuprofen, like, yeah, I take ibuprofen. Of course I do. I'm like, chug an ibuprofen. And he's like, well, does it help? And I'm like, no, it doesn't help. Nothing helps. And he's like, well, ibuprofen doesn't help because fibromyalgia is not a muscular illness. So it doesn't cause inflammation of the muscles. Therefore, taking an NSAID would not help because you're not trying to decrease inflammation in the body. And I was like, huh. Okay, that actually, that stands. Like that, that, that seems to be a diagnosis that I can work with. Of course, then comes the realization like, oh, fibromyalgia is a chronic illness, a long-term, a lifelong illness that has no cause, no known cause, no known cure, and the treatment is pretty hit or miss. So a lot of folks take medications like Lyrica, I'm very sensitive to medication, so I've not tried any of those medications. And I've mostly been trying to regulate my situation with sleep, diet, um, regulating stress, and pacing. But it's been really hard. It's been really hard. So my current situation is that I am working from home at the moment which is a little bit of a blessing because well one, I have a job, so that's wonderful blessing, but also I'm able to actually listen to my body when I'm working from home. So I'm able to say like, okay, I need to eat something that's gonna make me feel good today and I can actually go and make that or you know, I need to take a 15 minute break to lie down or I need to work from bed today Um, and those are things that I can do or I need to stop to stretch and those are things that I can do. And that has been amazing. So my current diet is that I'm 100% grain-free. I do not drink alcohol. I stopped drinking alcohol about five and a half months ago because I was extremely intolerant to it and it made me flare up really badly. I don't eat too much processed sugar, try to keep that low. Um, I'm gluten-free celiac. I identify as invisibly disabled. I have an invisible disability, and this disability is dynamic. Thanks to Brienne Bennis for coining that term as far as I know. She is the host of No End in Sight podcast, which is an awesome chronic illness podcast. Um, So a dynamic disability is a disability that changes, like your level of ability changes, can change day to day, minute to minute. It normally feels kind of very isolating to identify as invisibly disabled because just like it says, no one can see. No one can see. Nobody knows what you're dealing with when you're walking through the world. So people make a lot of assumptions, and it means it's really hard to fight for accommodations because when people can't see something that you're dealing with, they just automatically assume that it's not a problem. So to fight hard for something that nobody can see, it's like fighting against all of the forces in this world that tell us that mental illness is just in our heads and like isn't real and you should just get over it and that chronic illness is just mental illness and all of these like horrible horrible things and i mean the truth is a lot of people with chronic illness do live with mental illness but they're very very much different different problems right now so we're living through a global pandemic and the feelings that came with seeing accommodations being made at the beginning of this global pandemic were it was it was like an amazing time, but also a really frustrating time. Like in the first few weeks, I was like, oh, OK, we we always could have been working from home or we always could have prioritized taking care of our kids and our work or things like that. I was like, oh, wow, all of these things that people have fought really hard for both through labor movements and through the disability justice movements um all these accommodations were like oh this is so easy so this feeling of resentment that was like oh all this stuff that we've been fighting so hard for it's like as soon as able bodied people need it here you go there were all there was also this immense feeling of like oh you know, like a sigh out, these things that we've been fighting for for so long are possible, they're currently possible and like maybe once we have them, we won't lose them. And able-bodied people are understanding what it feels like to be housebound for the first time and with that again came the dual feeling of, wow, they understand what we experience, what some some of us experience, they understand it and maybe they'll be empathetic to it And then on the other hand, wow, they're really complaining a lot about being housebound. This is ridiculous. It's only been two weeks and some of us have been been housebound for years. (laughs) So it was a real mixed bag. But there's this beautiful sense of general unity. There were all of these think pieces being written about how we'll all be different after this. Like our world will be different. We'll have to make different choices. We'll have to prioritize community care. We'll have to make accommodations for people. Capitalism will not be, you know, guiding us all as fiercely as it currently is. That was amazing. Like that, that feeling was amazing. It was like a, a really optimistic feeling despite all of the terror and fear and despair of the global situation and the federal situation in the U.S. But after the first few weeks, we've seen this general malaise and boredom and frustration in able-bodied people. And it feels a little bit like folks have sort of decided like, well, I'm, I'm tired of this now. I'm, I'm tired of being home and not being able to go out. I'm tired of it so it's over. I guess it's just over now. It feels like the government has capitalized on that malaise and boredom and frustration and been like, "Okay, you're bored. So that means you're ready for the next thing," meaning, "Okay, we'll step in and we'll we'll bring back the economy. We'll bring back business. The economy will be booming again and, you know, okay, great. So everyone's bored. Let's let's make this a real capitalistic moment." And the truth is that capitalism does not want us to change. Capitalism wants us to continue with business as usual even though people are dying. Capitalism wants us to believe that disabled lives, black lives, Latinx lives, Muslim lives, poor lives, Jewish lives, that the lives of marginalized people are less valuable than the lives of rich, able-bodied, Christian white people. That we should sacrifice ourselves for the good of the economy. The economy is not a person and it makes no sense to sacrifice us for it. We're now in this situation where states are starting to open up and basically the businesses that are open, just like the essential workers who worked in food service or at grocery stores, et cetera, before, are the folks who work for businesses that are now being opened are basically guinea pigs. They are we're, the country is experimenting on our people to see how bad this is really going to be. And so the next few weeks are going to be a time for us to see the effects of opening the states. And this is just it's this is so unacceptable. It's it's really, really terrifying. And I fear as states begin to reopen, these marginalized groups, I mean, we're already seeing this, are becoming more and more disposable. Even people I love, like people in my life want to open the country back up because they believe that herd immunity is answer to everything. And like, whoo, okay. Don't get me started on herd immunity. I'll just make it quick. With herd immunity will come mass death. With herd immunity will come mass death. And I don't know about y'all, but I am not ready to die because my country wasn't prepared to handle a pandemic. I'm not ready to die because Karen wants to get her hair cut. Being invisibly disabled right now means coming face to face with the knowledge that you've always had sort of at the back of your mind that you actually are seen as disposable. And we are seeing this with hospital guidelines, triage guidelines, saying that disabled folks shouldn't receive ventilators when things have been really bad in the hospitals. And we're seeing this now, now that the country is opening up, the expectation is either you, you sick people, you elders, you folks who are at risk, just stay home. You stay home, but we'll go out. That also assumes that like we don't have people in our lives who aren't sick and like who have to work and things like that that might bring the virus back to us. Like when you think about your extended networks, this isn't like just somebody on Twitter who lives like 2500 miles from you who's tweeting about how hard and scary it is to be sick right now like this is your aunt this is your friend this is your grandma this is your boss these are the people around you a huge huge number and i don't have stats in front of me but a huge number of the population lives with chronic illness and is diagnosed but think about how hard it is and i talked about this earlier so from 2012 when i had that bout of acute illness that led to this big flare that was the beginning of like what i think of as my fibromyalgia of as my like acute fibromyalgia 2012 to 2019 is when i got diagnosed that is 7 years 7 years diagnosis so think about the number of people that are walking around without diagnosis and this is this could be without diagnosis of asthma of heart disease of whole range of things that renders them potentially more vulnerable to this illness and we don't even know what makes you more vulnerable to this illness we're just guessing at this point there are some conditions that we 100% know and then there are tons of people who seem to be well or able-bodied who are getting horribly sick and dying this means that no I mean everyone is vulnerable to say so to say that only sick people are vulnerable one is not true To say that sick people are vulnerable so they should just stay home implies that we aren't a worthy part of this society and so we don't need to be thought about. And three, the other option is to just say F it and go out and live our lives and that means sacrificing ourselves for the good of the economy. This just isn't a fair choice for anyone to make. We need economic support from our federal and state governments so that people don't need to make the choice between feeding their families and keeping them safe. And the money exists. It's there. The question is whether these administrations will make the choice to distribute it in a way that helps the people rather than furthering their agendas. And since it seems unlikely that they'll make that choice, how do we fight for ourselves and our communities to prioritize human lives over capitalist gain? Can we re-envision community care? Can we pool resources? Can we grow our own food? Can we reimagine education? Can this still be an opportunity for change, or is it too late? I think time will tell, and the next few weeks will be especially telling. And I think when rates of infection and mortality start to rise after states reopening, and maybe we're all back in shelter in place, can we go back to the drawing board then so that more lives aren't needlessly lost? This is our moral imperative. I mean, we have no other choice. If you care about people in your life, you have no other choice. I don't know what my level of risk is with my currently diagnosed conditions. And like I said earlier, I was in the process of seeking diagnosis for a few other potential conditions when coronavirus struck. So I don't know what my level of risk is with those potential conditions. I know that other folks who have those are staying home. ME is like I said, often thought of as a post-viral illness. So a lot of folks have an acute illness and it leads to debilitating neurological and other symptoms for their lives. My immune fibro came up to the surface after battling infections. So these things are not a joke. We already know that coronavirus has neurological impact at the very least even with mild to moderate cases. We know that because of the loss of sense of smell and taste. ME and fibro and other chronic illnesses are debilitating diseases that you cannot see and that no one takes seriously. People are terrified of chronic illness. They're so scared. I mean, I've I've always been terrified of chronic illness. When I got my fibro diagnosis, it was like a stab in the heart because, you know, you go from thinking like well, we're going to find an answer and it's not going to, it's going to be something I can just treat with a medication and then I'll be better. And you don't think like, oh, maybe that's not the case. Maybe I will be sick forever and I'll have to be contending with what it means to live in a sick body forever. People are so scared of that. Like people are terrified of being wheelchair bound. They're terrified of having brain damage. They're terrified, terrified, terrified that they're going to be disabled. Why is that? It's, because of the way that society treats disabled people so able-bodied people know that if they become disabled their life will not be seen to mean as much as it once did that they won't be seen as productive members of society that they m- might not even be safe in their home environments in their communities that they won't be able to get or keep a job that they maybe won't be able to get or sustain a life partner, that friends will leave, that family members will leave, that they'll feel awful, like they'll feel sick, or they'll feel hurt, hurting forever. That's really scary to imagine. So of course, people want to push this aside out of sight, out of mind, right? So we have to face reality for people who live with chronic illness, our quality of life and care is not optimal. I happen to be really lucky. I have a community that loves me. I have a job. I have a wonderful partner who helps to take care of me. And I have a good doctor right now. But we live in a society that pushes chronically ill and disabled folks into their homes and creates no options for us to live well. And I think that more and more people are about to discover this because we don't know the long-term implications of this virus. So will the way we support chronically ill people change when our numbers continue to grow? They need to. We have no choice. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the second episode of The Illness Chronicles. Please keep tuning in and tell all of your friends and family about it because it's so important to talk about this stuff right now and all the time. Happy Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. Happy Fibromyalgia Awareness Day if this is May 12th. Happy ME Month. And happy May. We made it to spring. You can follow us on Twitter at theillnesscrow One the illness chro number one or on instagram at the illness chronicles thank you so very much